0: three two one flight cleared for takeoff
1: Thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber today as we watch the continuing Russian invasion of Ukraine and try to make sense out of what's going on there. For those of us who are watching or listening from around the world, uh, this is, uh, today's show is an attempt to try to make sense of some of the things that we're, that we're seeing and hearing. Our guest today is again Mr. Jonathan Gay, who is an Army veteran, an attorney, a keen student of history and he runs a a Facebook page called Cold War Redux. so welcome, Jonathan, thanks for joining us again yeah, I, I know your time is short, so uh, we'll, we'll jump right in if you want to um, yeah yeah, so back to update the situation that's going on in uh, in Ukraine and Russia um you know when I, we were talking this morning i I mentioned four aspects um the situation in Ukraine itself, the European Union response, what's going on in Russia, and then of course the American position. Uh, whatever ours is going to be. So, I mean, that, that's kind of a way to break up the, the topic into some manageable bites. Um, I guess we can start with the situation actually in Ukraine itself. A lot's happened in just the past few days.
0: Um, you know, I, you and I exchange a lot of messages on Messenger, and, and I know you, uh, we, we talked about this, but Lenin had a, a famous quote that I think really fits the situation. And, and Lenin said, There are. Decades where little happens, and there are days and weeks where decades happen. And it seems like that's where we are. There's been so many things that have happened over the past few days. It's just extraordinary. Um, The situation in Ukraine, you know, I guess first, my heart breaks for those people who are first losing their lives, those people who are having to flee, and also the economic and the you know just from what I do for a living, I think about the mental health consequences. Those those poor children and those poor families having to to uh, constantly be bombarded or have to leave their homes and and the uh, the cost of that is enormous. And I just my heart goes out to
1: them. Yeah, no, it, it's a it's a tragedy on top of tragedy on top of you know just terrible circumstances, um, and and it feels from the sidelines, especially you know the, the the most emotion we get is also frustration because there's really not much you can do from from a great distance. I mean, we're we're essentially just observers in this uh, and commentators, um, you know. But what I've seen in, in terms of uh, the situation on the ground, from an, an analyst point of view. Um, you know, you look at the, the Russian uh, forces that are moving south from Belarus and then west from, from the eastern portion of the country. Most of the forces going to Kiev are coming from Belarus, because you look at the map, that, that's actually fairly close to the, the northern uh, border with Belarus. And some of them, the movement hasn't been as quick or effective as we might have expected. Uh, you know, every invasion force has logistics problems. So I don't I don't think there's anything unusual to see that, that Russia has its share um, so, you know, some of that, some of the slowness that we've seen may be due to unanticipated logistical difficulties on top of much, much stiffer Ukrainian resistance, um, than we expected. And I, I guess that's significant because, you know, eventually most, most militaries that, that are worth anything, figure out how to solve their logistics problems, um, whatever they are. You know, I've heard reports that Russians tanks have run out of gas, uh, you know, things like that. There's communications problems with getting things organized, um, you know, it, it happens in a large-scale operation. So once they get those things figured out, um, then then you might see a, a much renewed uh, offensive by the Russian forces onto uh, the the Ukrainian defenses. Well, at least that's my take.
0: Yeah, you you see, you know it's interesting. You seem to have two. Th- th- there are two schools of thought on that. That there's the one that I think you you very nicely articulated just now, and there are also folks who are willing to be a little. More optimistic and say, "Look, this." I actually saw an article earlier before you and I got on. Uh, <clears throat> 1945, I think, was the website um, that this army, this Russian army, is a paper tiger, and it may not have the ability to pull off what what is trying to do. And I think that's where this next week is going to be so critical. It, it will it will put this thesis to the test of is it a paper tiger? Or is it just an army that suffered from maybe it's more, maybe more than its usual share of logistical issues, but it was able to work those out. And uh, history is watching, and it's it's going to be um, it's going to be extraordinary. Uh, you know, when you when you look at history, though, there are there are parallels. You know, we look at the Battle of Salamis, we look at the the Battle of Marathon. Um, I guess, in, what I'm wondering, and also the strengths of Thermopylae is is Ukraine going to be the straits of thermopylae that gave the west time and precious energy to to ultimately roll back this evil empire the way that the greeks were able to defeat the persians or is it going to be a marathon where once and for all they expose that the weakness and the incompetence of the uh, of the east and you know that's that's why I, I, i'm riveted by watching the TV and all these things happening.
1: Well, and another dimension to that is uh this is also being called the TikTok war and there's because there's so many different uh, and actually an astonishing number of different clips and imagery and so it's it's really impossible to tell with 100% certainty what what's genuinely authentic, what's being presented in a certain way to advance the agenda of one side or the other. um what I'm struck by, though, when it comes to the, the TikTok aspect of this is there, there's a thing, there's sort of a movement amongst the uh, Generation Z that's called, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, it's called Birds Aren't Real. Have you ever heard of birds aren't real? So it, it, birds aren't real is sort of a, it's a troll on trolling, if you will. Okay, so people who look at it from the outside think, oh, somebody thinks birds aren't real because an internet rumor said so, and that's that's crazy, then we will live in a crazy world. It's actually just the opposite. The people who started the rumor, they know that birds are real, but they know they can make people think that they don't by by planning that rumor. And so it sort of just became its own movement. And so whenever people talk about it, the folks that are in on the joke Okay, we know that there are birds, but we're seeing how far this we can take this joke before people get it. And so there's a certain dimension of that to the young people that are that are posting these TikTok clips and other things. As in, I think they expect their audience to know that some of them are not 100 percent authentic. And that's okay because it still serves a purpose. It still demonstrates that we have us, that Ukrainians have a fighting spirit. It still demonstrates that they're trying to motivate their forces and their people to rally together and that they're doing that. So even if a clip you get may may say, okay this isn't 100 percent a factually accurate thing that happened. Well, they know that. That, that's not the point. It wasn't intended to be uh, a 100% factually accurate thing. It was intended to be a morale booster. And for that, in that sense, it still works.
0: It, it does, and, and, and I don't know which, you know, ultimately how much of this is, is puff and how much of this is uh, is real. Uh, but the, you, you think of some of the images that have come out over, just over the last few days of, of multiple tanks, of the... The farmer stealing the tank for scrap metal. I saw that. The, uh, the, the I, I, this is not the, their terminology, but my terminology. The multi-launch rocket system that they uh, that they captured this today, and, and you, you sort of scratch your head, and, and that apparently was fully loaded and functional, and you wonder why on earth would the soldiers have left that, and, and some of these videos where the soldiers appear completely. Clueless as to their ultimate destination or what they're doing, just just amazing. And, and you're right; it could it could be quite a bit of puff, and, and you know
1: we, we'll find out over the next week or so. I think. Uh, yeah, and that's and that's with, yeah, that's sort of why I brought that up, though, because the information aspect of this is central, also to Russia's uh plan it's an yeah. integral part of their plan so they can't just turn off the internet because they rely on it too and so there you yeah. see the one of the the limitations of their planning is if you're going to leave the web up then you're going to give your adversaries just as much chance to post things as you are and right now in that arena i think the ukrainians are winning um, i don't think there's any yeah. doubt about that
0: they're, they're winning the information where you know it, it strikes me that um, i have friends who are in russia and they're afraid to even comment even, even those folks who are supportive of Putin are afraid to step out and comment, which I think says a lot about the kind of, of world that, that he's trying to create. Um, but, but, yeah, you know, it, it, and, and I'm struck by the fact I haven't checked today, but I've been watching to see if those folks are online. And so far they continue to be online. They continue to be on Facebook. So if they're on Facebook, possibly – Maybe it's banned in certain areas. Maybe it's banned for people of certain nationalities. But I'm wondering. I mean, you know, these these are folks who live in Russia proper, and they they have access to social media, and and they're probably watching the same things we are. Maybe a little more surreptitiously than 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 uh, we are. But uh, you know. And you're right, they
1: are winning the information war. And The Economist had a a piece this morning. I'm a subscriber, so I got access to their stuff. Um, They posted a map that had, um, it listed the hashtag no war, uh, which Russian cities it has shown up in. And according to their map, it was all of them. Um, so there, there's widespread, uh, on, on, online at least, I- indications that there, and this is the second dimension that I talked about at the outset, what's going on inside Russia. So there appears to be a pretty lively chunk of the population in Russia that, that want nothing to do with this. Uh, not just the uh, reported arrests that have occurred, whether the numbers are accurate or not. I've seen as low as 1,500. I've seen as high as 6,000. You know, impossible to say for sure which one's right. It does appear that there has been some pretty substantial protests against the war within Russia itself, and that's expressed itself both physically in, in town squares and in city squares and online, such as the Twitter account and the Twitter hashtag No War. You know, and
0: also several of the oligarchs have spoken out, against Putin. Uh, it remains to be seen whether that can be translated into a, a, a viable political opposition. You know, I, I think that in order for Putin, and, and it's, it, this goes to show that how, how amazing this debate is. You, you and I would, would have probably, uh, if I have mentioned this a week ago, you'd have probably done a mental health check for me, but there are people, credible people, who are discussing regime change right now. And I think that if regime change is going to happen, it's going to have to happen by an inside coup. And I don't know if there's that kind of support, um, but you can bet if there is that kind of support, this is the moment that a lot of those folks are, are wondering, maybe I should take the swing.
1: Yeah, you know, historically, the Russian people got rid of the czars. The Russian people got rid of the Soviet Union. They're certainly capable of getting rid of the Putin regime on their own. Uh, and they have demonstrated through their history that when, when they come across a regime that they don't like uh, at home, they don't have any qualms about uh, using whatever means they need to, to get rid of that regime. So um, yeah, that's, that's certainly a possibility. And you know, we're um, leading to the third aspect of this, are NATO allies in Europe. So what's, what's the European Union doing about this? So they're watching that. They're watching the situation uh, in Ukraine, and of course, they have a much different uh, perspective on it than we do because it's in their literal backyard. I mean, they have a land bridge. This is on their border. So for us, it's you know six thousand miles away across an ocean, but for European friends, especially for the Poles and, and folks in the eastern part of the European Union, uh, boy, it's it's right there. Um, it's not that far onto the frontier uh, for this stuff to happen. So they're they're seeing things in a much more intense light, I think, than we are.
0: They they are. You know, these are democracies, and sometimes we forget that democracies uh, can, can really be inflamed. And, and you know, uh, we look back to 9-11. The things we did after 9-11 were uh, historical and, and unprecedented, and it was because of uh, the, the public groundswell for those sorts of policies— And I'm wondering where where this groundswell is going to take us in Ukraine. You know, we've already seen unprecedented sanctions. We've already seen unprecedented support in terms of sending them weapons. Uh, If we see Kiev Kiev, uh, slowly degraded uh, through a bombardment, through through a siege, what will the European governments be forced to do next? And, and how far
1: is Europe willing to go to try to save the, uh, the the folks of Ukraine? You know, I think of I think of when we grew up during the Cold War, and there was all kinds of there was tons of of scholarship and lots of debate, and we had all kinds of theoretical exercises where we talked about the ideologies and and what it was like to be in a Cold War. But sometimes we we in, in today's world, you know, human beings are emotional beings. We we're emotional creatures, and when you go through a trauma. You know, say a car wreck, for example. You know, your entire life can change in a matter of seconds, uh, and that event changes you for life. Well, when you go through something like the invasion of an entire country, you've got thousands of traumatic events all happening at the same time, being shared by millions and watched by even more. And so, what I what I what I mean by that is, events can change people. Events can change perceptions. They can change thoughts and habits, and I think we're seeing that, especially with respect to the European Union, because there was a a pretty compelling piece in the the Washington Post this morning, and the headline was, European Union completely revamps its Russia policy in 72 hours. And the reason why you might think that, I'm not saying that's 100% true, but there are certainly some signs that things are moving in that direction. And I think the reason is they've been able to see so much of what's going on in Ukraine in real time. So there's the value of that being, or, or the impact, or rather, of that being a TikTok war. You know, people watching that, and, and that includes heads of state, that includes leaders of nations, they see it too. And in emotionally, it has an effect on them. And I think it's having an effect on the European Union. That's why their chief has said that they're open to uh, bringing Ukraine into the EU. And before this conflict started there, that really was not the case. So that's a significant change. I've seen. I don't know if EU is actually sending fighter jets to Ukraine proper. I know that there is a lot of US and NATO forces moving east within the NATO alliance. Then that's just to beef up our border, but they are not supposed to be flying across the border of Ukraine, as far as I know.
0: Yeah, I think they're they're giving planes to Ukrainian pilots. I'm, I'm assuming they're flying out of they're flying out of Poland, but they're, um there there are multiple. Fighters that have apparently been reconfigured, uh, old Soviet fighters, and given to the Ukraine Ukrainian forces. Of course, I wonder how many how many of those folks are are still alive. But I did see the most recent update is the Soviet Union. Sorry, Russia still does not have air supremacy in Ukraine.
1: Yeah, and so just to clarify for folks who may be listening, at least in in the Air Force, when we were when we were studying it, air supremacy. Is a very is, is a specific has a specific meaning, and it means that you have uncontested control of the battle space. So if an enemy is still up there fighting you, even if you're winning, you don't yet have supremacy. Supremacy is total domination. You have there's there's no more enemy air assets either targeting you or threatening you. So right now they haven't got to that point. I think they I, I think they appear to be just through their numbers have effective control. Of the Ukrainian airspace, and they're able to operate for the most part where they want to, but they don't have supremacy, at least not the way uh, we defined it in the in the U.S. Air Force. And,
0: and I wonder how much of that is attributable to Ukrainian Air Force, and how much of that is the, uh, the presence of uh, air defense, including Stingers?
1: It, it, I would say it has a lot to do with those, because if you look at the way the Russian military operated, they initiated this campaign in a very similar way to what we did when it, when it came to operations in Iraq. The first thing you target are their, their radar sites, their communications, so you'd make them blind and you make them deaf. That's the first two things you do. Once you take that away and they can't communicate, they can't see, then it becomes very easy just to carve up what's left. Uh, because they're not able to fight effectively or mount an organized resistance against what you're trying to do. And it looked like those were the very targets that the Russian air assets went after uh, in the opening rounds, the opening salvos. Um, They took out Ukrainian radar, they took out their communications, they took out their command and control. So even though they didn't target all their jets... Once you take those things away, you know just a pilot flying by himself with no command and control is a very limited, uh, has a very limited ability to fight back against a uh, superior force. And I, I use that term superior force simply to reflect the numbers that Russia has, because they certainly have a numerical advantage um, over the Ukrainians. And so that brings us to the third, the fourth piece, um, the United States, because there have been some Americans, most notably Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who is himself a former Air Force guy, or he may currently still be in the reserve. So he's proposed that America enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which we both know would would be a, a declaration of war against Russia. Um, and I don't think it's going to happen. But it's just interesting to hear that.
0: It, it is interesting, and it's interesting to hear the Ukrainians plead for that so vehemently. Um, it, it makes you wonder what is the what is the end game, you know? Because they're mentioning it so much, especially when you've got a serious guy like Adam Hinziger mentioning it as, as much as he is. I, I I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if he truly thinks that's possible or if he's just out trying to get applause points, you know, he, he doesn't strike me as that kind of person. Maybe there's some kind of halfway point of safety. You know, I, I think I read earlier that there's a, an air, I'm going to get the jargon mixed up but an air safety zone where you can transit for supplies and that may become an issue. You know, I mentioned to you earlier, the Berlin airlift, if the Russians manage to cut off Kiev, will they allow humanitarian aid to come into the city? Now, militarily, one would think
1: not. but I, I doubt that they would. I, going back to your comments about why is Ukraine so so keen on getting a, a air cover, I've looked at some of the, the videos that have been shared, not just by, by English and European sources, but by, by Russians, too. A lot of the titles in English that are that are called rocket or artillery attacks, I've looked at them and they look to me like they're not rocket and artillery attacks. Those are airstrikes. Those munitions they are, that are being shown in those pictures are coming from aircraft. So I think it's possible that the, the Russian Air Force has been more active against ground targets than we have initially thought. And and Ukrainians are, are feeling it because they really have no defense against that. Um, they can fight the ground forces. You know they've got a, a good anti-tank capability. They they know the terrain as far as the ground. So holding ground is one thing, but boy, when you when you have an air force, an enemy air force above you dropping stuff on your forehead, and there's nothing you can do about it, that's not only a serious threat to your your survival and your operations. It's a, just an absolute morale killer. Uh, when you look up there and there's nothing you can do about it. So I suspect, based on imagery, that maybe that's why you're seeing so much emphasis by Ukraine's leaders placed on a no-fly zone. At least that's my take.
0: Yeah they they're quite adamant and, and it just seems like a non-starter which begs the question why why are they continuing to beat that drum
1: Well it's a non-starter um, so, for us but in their situation you know if you're in in Kyiv right now you know it might you might have yeah. no choice but to but to make a desperate plea
0: Well and you know and I wonder the United, we both know the United States is, is holiday, never say never but but the United States is practically never going to concede to doing a no-fly zone, not, not in this conflict, uh, when it comes to Russia. Is there some sort of halfway measure? Is there some way that some other force could step in nationally and, and would feel inclined to step in nationally? I, I don't know the answer to that,
1: but you know the, the desperate times call for desperate measures. Here's what I would say to watch for in the next couple of weeks on that. Um, I think some of that will depend on how things play out on the ground because as the Russian ground offensive, if it gains ground, if they take Kiev, if they take the major cities and they start pushing west of the Dnieper River, okay, now you're really getting close to Poland and Romania and, and, and our easternmost, you know, the easternmost tip of the NATO sphere. And I, and I bring that up because a couple, a couple things are probably going to happen. You'll see an increased refugee flow across that way. If we're going to attempt to do any type of supply through the ground, we're going to see that continue to happen. And so then you have to start asking yourself, okay, we've got refugees that are being strafed by the Russian Air Force. We've got supply convoys we're trying to send in that are being shot at by the Russian forces. The pressure will grow to extend that air cover just, just over the eastern tip of what's left of Ukraine if, if things go in that direction. And, and so then you'll see a more intensified call for that over a smaller portion of the, uh, the country, I think anyway if it plays out that way you know,
0: the uh the next week or so is is going to be pivotal i think and and i'm glued personally glued to the tv set and to my twitter feed i find that twitter has the uh, the best analysis which is some, somewhat counterintuitive because you would think that with given how few characters you can use to tweet <clears throat> but folks get around that and i find that's the best source of analysis but it's it's uh, it's terrifying to see what's happening right now in Ukraine. And you keep wondering, what's the end game? With Putin mentioning nukes and, and Europe and the world responding so forcefully to their aggression so far. Neither side seems
1: willing or capable of backing down. So how far will this go? Yeah, and when I, when I brought up the change in, in attitude in the European Union, I, I think we ought to take a moment and consider that. Um, you know the long history of Europe has has an enormous amount of uh, warfare and conflict in it, and just because in the past thirty years the nations of Europe have decided they wanted to be more peaceful, that could that could come to a, a screeching halt very fast. They could go right back to arming up. They could go right back to being militarized, uh, and it could happen in a pretty short order of time. And I, I've heard them say things that make me think they're already thinking about moving in that direction.
0: And you know, I wonder to what's going on in the minds of the Russian elites you know because this conflict truly doesn't help too many people to, to continue the way it is and uh, Putin is about the only one that is in a position where he he can't back down. I think everyone else is in a position where they probably could compromise a little as far as Russian standpoint and so is he able to truly maintain a, an iron grip? Or will we start to see that, that grip loosen?
1: Yeah, and some of that will depend on, you know, what happens on the ground and, and how, how much more resistance Ukraine can put up and, and how much more difficult the taking of the terrain becomes in terms of the loss of life or the loss of equipment uh, and the logistical challenges that Russia faces Um if if the if things were to collapse more quickly, I think it would probably it would help his position a lot a lot more. Uh, whereas a prolonged fight, um, and that's something I was gonna I meant to bring up at the outset. You know, will we see at some point? a transition from a full-on national resistance of Ukraine versus Russia to, okay, the country now is kind of collapsed as far as a nation-state, but there's still pockets of really, really intense insurgency going on in different places. And that could even include the capital, even if it's occupied by most of the Russian forces, which they, they look like, based on the satellite imagery, if that's to be trusted, um, that they're, they're getting pretty close uh, with some, some pretty substantial amounts of firepower. Um, and and I don't know that that civilian barricades and Molotov cocktails will really stand up to that for very long.
0: Yeah, I, w- I wonder to what extent they're armed with with javelins and and RPGs inside the city.
1: Yeah, those are actually in, in the short in the close quarters urban stuff. Those can be very effective um, against large because in, in, when you have to slow down in the urban environment, your tank becomes a big slow target itself. Um, even though it's hard to kill, if you've got the right weapon there, um, it's a pretty easy shot.
0: Well, and, and don't forget, this is uh, something that that I did for, for a few years when I was in the military, but that's uh, the, the uh, infantry. They're going to have to have copious numbers of infantry in order to accompany those those tanks. Otherwise, those tanks quickly become sitting ducks. So do they have the uh, the mix of armor and infantry to ultimately advance, and, and I don't know the answer to that, but that's that's going to be something to watch as
1: well. And, and of course, n- none of us do. We'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. Um, but I, I think as we look at this, you know, and try to keep track of all these different elements that are going on, we should also remember some of the important parts of the, uh, the conflict that don't get talked about as much. Uh, when everybody's focused on what's going on in the battlefield or the latest video, um, you know, the underlying ideas at play here are also hugely important. Um, because it's it's become clear that putin has shown us what he really is and and, and it, it it's not an, it's not a stretch to say that this is a battle against an authoritarian regime uh, and their and their grip on their own population sort of illustrates that and so even though here in the united states you know I, another election year another crisis this, there's always there has to be a global crisis during an election year right i mean what's the point of doing it when there's not one um, as messy and ugly as our, our, our politics will get and sometimes as absurd as they will get, um, we should we should look at them with a new perspective and be thankful we have them um, because they don't have that in Russia. Uh, even though our political groups will sometimes make good points, sometimes they'll make bad points, sometimes they'll say things that are absurd, there's still a credible opposition here. and The opposition has political power in the United States. That's not the case in Russia. The opposition doesn't have any power. Putin has it all. That's what a dictatorship is. It's a rule by one person, and that's what Russia has. It's become pretty clear that he is the power source, and no one else can really tell him what to do, or even, or even criticize him, or even slow him down.
0: You're, you're, you're exactly right, and that's where we That's why we're seeing this war unfold as it is. You know, it's it has, it truly has been a tragedy for Russia as well. You know, their their economy will have been sent back many years by the time this thing is all over. And, of course, Vladimir Putin won't pay the price for that, but the average person on the street who has struggled over the last decade or so to build a life as a professional and to create a new economy in Russia, these are the folks that are about to uh, suffer the most. You know, and I, I want to mention one other thing. We talked about Putin and, and how he represents authoritarianism, and I totally agree. And also, though, I want to sing the praises of Zelensky, because this guy, I mean, no one anticipated that this actor turned politician would be the next Winston Churchill. But I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to say that he has the, uh, the, the kind of rhetorical ability to embody freedom and democracy the way Churchill did 70 years ago. You know, contrast
1: this with the way the regime fell in Kabul in Afghanistan. The Afghan president, which we had supported, the second the Taliban started entering the capital, he was gone. He didn't last a, yeah. a week. He was out of there. So look at the complete opposite way that, that Zelensky has approached this, by actually saying, no, but no, thanks, I don't want to leave, I'm going to stay here and fight it out. Um, you know, that's that takes guts. It really does. When you know you've got a ticket to safety and you can take it and you, you choose not to and you stay there and, and take on what is unquestionably a numerically superior force that's bearing down on you right on the outskirts of your your, your capital, um, that takes guts.
0: He, he's extraordinary and he's become a symbol. And, and whether, whether he remains a living symbol or becomes a martyr, we'll probably know a lot about that over the next week or so.
1: Yes, and, and also we'll, we'll see what becomes of the situation on the ground. I mean, can they hold the capital? Because um, I think that's, that's a, a key that there's a lot of the government infrastructure there, and, and if you lose that, it becomes very difficult to mount resistance on a national level. Um, it's not, it wouldn't be a stretch to say if Kiev falls, you know, Ukraine itself may not really exist anymore as an independent nation. It, it probably still would, but not in the same way. Um, that, that just holds so much uh, power in, in terms of the governing ability of their of their government.
0: It, it does, and it's such a symbol. But you know, I wonder ultimately if the Russians do not depopulate um, Ukraine, do not depopulate uh, Kiev, then how do they rule? Because now. Given you know, I think there was there was a lot of thinking, and, and of course, I don't think you and I shared this thinking. But I think Putin thought that he would that the Russians would be welcomed, and that many people were were excited about getting out from under the yoke of, of these authoritarian Ukrainians. Uh, it turns out that they very much want to keep their identity, and they very much want to keep their own political leadership. So, how are you going to assemble? Any kind of functioning government, when everybody despises
1: you. Yeah, and I I know um, I've tried to go online and look at a couple of, of websites from the the Russian government, and many of them are not working right, right now. And so I don't know. You can obviously they've they've either been turned off deliberately or they've been targeted. You know, Anonymous declared cyber war, and the Ukraine's been doing a pretty good, pretty darn good job itself uh, of waging a cyber campaign against uh, Russia. So you can't get to their their websites, but there used to be. There is a video that was made by the, the Russian state media uh, and it was posted I think on the twenty sixth of December of February, just a few days ago. Um, and it was it was basically announcing that operations have been completed and that the Russia has was in complete control and the Ukrainians welcomed them and the new regime is being established. Um, it was a it was a post victory video designed to tell the Russian people that it was over and it was it was everything was wrapped up nice and neat and they have since taken that down. <laughs> uh for for obvious reasons
0: I, I, I saw where the, there was an article associated with that but it's still active uh, in in the archives of, of some of these web pages and uh, yeah but they they totally misread the
1: situation but you know as I mentioned earlier a, a few days ago when we were chatting about this, you know the Russian the general staff told the Soviet Politburo that they'd be in and out of Afghanistan in six months in nineteen seventy nine uh you know that went on for for you know much much longer than many, many years. Uh, Americans we've made this mistake we've assumed that an operation can be planned and executed with a speed and efficiency that isn't realistic uh, when you actually get there um, we've thought that people would welcome us as uh, as liberators or greet us with, with open arms when we got there and it didn't happen so uh, it's not not just the russian military that uh, could possibly make that mistake we've we've made it too uh, but once you get there you know getting in is a lot easier than getting out um, it's it's a lot more difficult to, to withdraw even if you have a command authority that's telling you to withdraw, which Russia doesn't have at this point. Um, I haven't heard much in terms of the negotiations that are supposedly going on near the border of Belarus. Not much has come of that so far. I was going to ask you if you'd, if you'd seen anything new on that. Um, I haven't.
0: No, I saw yesterday Putin's delegation was led by a pretty low-ranking official culture minister, so it, it seems like it was not it was not something that was going to bear any fruit.
1: No, I, I agree. It, it appeared to be either either just a token effort, or I, I'm not even sure really what the the purpose would be for that. But but nothing uh, that's actually going to lead to a cessation of hostilities anytime soon. Not through that route, anyway. Yeah. So I, I guess so. I guess as we go forward now, looking into the next the second week of the conflict, I mean the key things will be to watch what happens with the capital city to watch the actions of the EU, to see how much more aggressively they respond, and then internally to keep an eye on what's going on to the, to the extent that we can to see what's, what's happening inside Russia in terms of uh, how the population feels about this. Yeah.
0: And I think also to watch the, you know, we got a State of the Union address tonight. I think that Biden seems to have the, uh, the ability to, uh, to steer a pretty strong course towards Ukraine for now. And I don't expect that will change. You know, the the other thing that I'm really keeping an eye on is Zelensky. Can can Zelensky continue to to live? Because we all know that that the Russians have sent quite a few assassination teams uh, to go after him. So that does and they're they're bombing the city. So do they somehow manage to take out Zelensky? And if so, what's the impact on the insurgency? Uh, and, and I'm still fascinated by. I mean, we've we had 500,000 people leave and flee to the west. You know, sooner or later, those folks are going to want to come home, and they're going to they're going to gain courage to try to come back in some capacity. What will those folks do? Yeah, well, we'll
1: it's it's and I, and I think that by the time this is whatever conclusion this conflict reaches, that number will be significantly higher um, than just 500,000. That's just the start. I mean, that's just the first wave. Um, I, I think there will be many successive waves that all may be larger than the first one, um, depending on what plays out on the ground.
0: And, you know, as as counterintuitive as that is for us as as a goal for Putin, I, I, I wonder if that's not one of his primary goals. You know, you and I were talking earlier about World War II and now Hitler had as a primary strategic objective the destruction of the Jews who were— Truly, not not a threat to him, but he perceived them to be a threat thanks to his political ideology. And I think Putin, to a very large degree, views Ukraine and independence in that same light. I think he, he views their very survival as a dangerous and lethal threat to his vision of Russia. So, and then he's willing to to suffer just about any cost to follow through on his goal.
1: Yes, unfortunately, the problem with uh, fanatics are when they have a belief that isn't grounded in reality and they come into contact with that reality, then they have to choose. uh, Do I change my my belief system or do I try to change reality? And I think so far, at least, it looks like Putin has chosen that that, uh, it's reality that's the problem. Uh, Clearly, he doesn't have any doubts about his own beliefs, at least not yet. Uh, And so the object is now we're going to have to be, uh, this reality is going to have to be changed. Um, And that's what it looks like. And and that they've mounted a force this large um, to attempt to do it is uh, is pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably about all we could do for for today. We that's just to kind of catch up on what what's happened in the past few days. I know we can have some further discussions as things have developed down the road. Um, there'll be key developments that we can look for. Um, I would I don't think the, the EU is going to make Ukraine a member this week. I don't think it can happen that fast. Um, so I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but if that was one of the red lines for, for Russia, for Putin, I think he's already failed in that, because clearly uh, a large portion of Ukraine and the EU now see themselves as closer than ever. Um, so if, if, your, if your military objective or your political objective was to bring them back into the fold of Russia, uh, I, I think that's gone exactly the other way.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, and uh, just let me know if we can do this
1: again. Absolutely, I think there'll be uh, plenty more to talk about in the future. And thanks again for uh, for joining us. You know, after we um, after we had this conversation uh, yesterday, uh, President Biden delivered the State of the Union address, and I'm not going to go into the specifics on that, but uh, suffice to say that uh, a fair amount of that address was devoted to the situation in Ukraine, and I hope folks understand. That while we certainly have our share of, of domestic problems here in the United States, and, and those problems absolutely deserve uh, our attention, the attention of our government and the resources of our government, there's really no way to avoid addressing the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It is, as Jonathan has said, uh, maybe either either in an earlier show or just to me, that this is probably one of the most significant global events since 9-11. And I think that's true. So that, I think, is the reason why you saw so much attention devoted to that uh, in the State of the Union address by President Biden. And and I think that was the right thing to do, because there has to be a clear message sent from the United States to our allies in Europe, to whoever else may be watching, and specifically to, to Mr. Putin himself, that his actions are, are not going to be allowed to go... Um, without consequence. There will be severe consequences for him uh, and unfortunately for Russia as well. You know, I know there's a lot of folks in Russia who do not support the war effort in Ukraine, and nonetheless, they are limited in their ability to express that due to the very same uh, Putin regime. So we should also keep that in mind as we go forward uh, and watch this situation unfold. We'll be keeping an eye on it. We'll bring back updates as new events happen. And again, thanks for listening.